Well, good morning, everyone. It is a great day, not because, not only because the weather is cool and this perfect weather for our fall fellowship, but because of what we get to talk about this morning, and I love it. Here's what I want to say to you, though, just because you know that this is one of my favorite topics to teach on, don't just dismiss what I say because you say that that's Jeff. No, 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 no. This is God. This is Paul. This is the scriptures, okay? So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as we start our second week of an eight-week series with an emphasis on outward with the mission. One New Testament scholar, C.K. Barrett, calls this text in 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21, one of the most pregnant and important in the whole of Pauline literature. John Calvin said about it, here, if anywhere in Paul's writings, we have a quite remarkable, important passage, and we must carefully examine the words one by one. Now, one of the reasons I think they say this about this text is because it speaks to one of, if not the most important role you and I play once we come to Christ. So let me build some context. The context here is about dying. People often say uh, there are two things certain in life, death and taxes. Some people can scam their way out of the ladder, but no one, no one cheats their way out of death. That's for sure. Death is not a question of if, but when. As Solomon says, he tells us in Ecclesiastes, death is the great equalizer, no matter if you're the president or a pauper. There's a lot of misinformation, though, and ignorance when it comes to death. And so Paul says here in verse 1, he said, that's not the case for us as a believer. When it comes to death, he uses this phrase in verse 1, for we know, for we know as Christians, when we die, eternity is our destiny as we make this transition from this frail and fallen body to our future glorified body. Paul even says here, he calls this body now a temporary tent, but our future body is a permanent building made with imperishable materials. So the theme of this reality of Christians and eternity in Christ continues through verse 5. And then from verse 6 through 10, he flips it and he asks this question. What should we do while we are here in this temporary tent awaiting our future home, our future body? Great question. So we come to Christ and you notice when we come to Christ, 99.99% of us are not just beamed up immediately to heaven. Paul answers that question. What do you do? Once you come to Christ, you're in a temporary tent. You're waiting your future eternity. And he gives us four things. Six through eight, he says, be of good courage. We walk by faith and not by sight. Then he says, so whether we are in eternity or here... Our goal is to please Christ. So he lays out these three things, and then in verse 10, he gives us the reason why. Why do we live in good, be of good courage? Why do we walk by faith and not sight? Why do we, when we're here, our goal is to please Christ? He says, because, verse 10, summarize, 
Once we hit eternity as believers, we will all appear before the judgment seat or the Bema seat to receive what we have done in our deeds while on earth in this temporary tent. Do you see how Paul uses that? So let, let me pause here a minute. I may have taken your breath away. Let me explain what's going on here. There's two judgment seats that the scriptures speak of. There's the white, great white throne judgment, and that is for non-Christians. And that judgment is for to determine heaven or hell, with Christ or without Christ. Okay? Then there's a second judgment seat that Paul's speaking of here. The word is a bema seat. And this, uh, this seat is for Christians only. It is not to determine innocence or guilt because a judgment of not guilty has already been declared and given when you and I placed our trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. That in itself takes our breath away. But this judgment seat and our future reward in the kingdom of God will be determined, it says, by the quality of our deeds. So here's what we need to know about the Bema seat. Why, did, why is God doing this? This Bema seat or seat of accountability is not to take away the joy of being with Christ, but the reality of it is meant to be a stimulus that affects our motives. And as we grow in Christ, what happens is it tops or supersedes all our ambitions in life. The good Words good or evil in verse 10 can be better translated worthwhile or worthless. So as we grow, we begin to understand what is worthwhile and what is worthless. And Paul says at the end of our lives, there will be a judgment of that as believers. Meant as a motivation, meant as a stimulus. Matter of fact, when you go to work, most of you wouldn't go to work if you didn't get what? What did you say? I check or paid, yeah, yeah, right? That's a stimulus. God has hardwired us as humans in that way. <clears throat> so the worthwhile things are those that contribute to the advancement of God's mission and glory in the world, however big or small they may be. And there's millions of those in Christ's kingdom. But here's what's intriguing. Here's what sort of brings clarity to this text. The very next word that comes off the tip of Paul's pen after verse 10 in this accountability of the Bema seat or judgment seat for believers is the word therefore, and then his therefore is tell others about Christ. Paul makes a direct connection before standing before the judgment seat of Christ and telling others about Christ. The first worthwhile thing he mentions for us to do as believers, the, you want to know the most worthwhile thing you can do with your life? Tell others about Christ. And then in this text, he goes on to give 11 motivations for sharing Christ with other people. I love how Henry Ward Beecher <clears throat> talked about motives. She said, God made man... To go by motives, and he will not go without them, any more than a boat without steam or a balloon without gas. The truth of the matter is, for you and I, when the heart is right, 
The feet are swift to action. Our motives really do matter. Therefore, it's important that you and I know why it is we share our faith. What motivates you and I to do something, share our faith in Christ, that typically we don't feel like doing or we're afraid to do? So this morning, I'm not going to teach you how to share your faith. I'm not going to teach you how to evangelize. But I am going to try with everything in my being under the leading of the Spirit of God to motivate you to want to share your faith. So let me throw this in. This may help us with our motivation. Just this past week, I read a long article in Christianity Today that Lifeway did this broad survey of evangelicals. Here's what they came back with. 52% of all evangelical, so-called Bible-believing Christians said that man is basically good at his core. Yeah. We know the Bible doesn't teach that. It teaches the direct opposite of that. It says 51% of evangelicals say God accepts the worship of all religions. Folks, there's a problem, not in the outhouse, but in the in-house. <laughs> There's a problem in the church when it comes to the clarity of the gospel. Churches are full of those people who know about Jesus but don't know him. And then it said of Americans in general, not evangelicals, everyone, 70%, 6% of Americans believe you must do something to contribute to your salvation. All oh, there is a world that does not know but they think they know, and we know. So, motivation number one. Look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul recognizes, as he has said in verse 10, that his whole life and ministry will come under God's inspection, and it is with this awareness that he persuades men to come to faith in Christ. That word persuade means to convince, to win over through reasoning from the scriptures that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Acts 18.4, we see Paul doing just this. He's in Corinth, and it says, Paul reasoned in the scriptures, or reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. I had become a Christ follower a couple years in. I'm having this conversation with my mother about Jesus because she'd been in church all her life, but there was no evidence or fruit whatsoever. It was antithetical to the gospel. And secondly, she couldn't answer the very basic questions of if you died tonight and stood before God and he asked, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? She gave a works answer. I'm not that bad. and I'm, I'm better than most. And I've never murdered anybody. And no, but you've thought about murdering thousands and you have in your head, right? And you have with your words. And so... She looked at me with venom on her lips, and she said, Jeff, I believe in God. Got a chance to turn your Bible, James 2.19. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Let's keep talking, Mom. Here's what Paul's saying here. 
When we realize what is at stake, we fear God and we persuade people. Because we know what's coming for us and we know what's coming for the non-believer. So here's what Paul's saying. We set out facts. We answer questions and objections. We help people understand. We talk. We pray. We take risks. We open the scriptures. We take time and we serve. Paul says the fear of the Lord motivates him. Motivation number two. To rid ourselves of the opinions of others. Now, it if I did a survey here, including myself, if we could get rid of one sin that just sucks the life out of us, it would be what others think of us. Can we say amen to that? Don't you wish it was just a switch that said, identity in Jesus, not in others. Flip it and we go, I don't care what you think. And we really, really believe that, right? Paul's saying here that's actually a motivation to share the gospel. Look at verse 13. Paul says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. What's happening here in, we, we already did 1 Corinthians. This is a follow-up letter to Corinthians. And they're a nutty culture, right? And they are now accusing Paul of not being legit. So Paul's response to them is this. If people think we are a little nutty because we persuade men to come to Christ, so be it. We'll be nutty for God. Like, if that's the word, like, he just said, man, I really like them, and, but they're nutty for God. Okay, I'll take nutty for God over a lot of other things that are actually true of me, right? Paul says, if that's the case, he says, if people actually think well of us, and we're sound mind, that's to your benefit. So imagine this, if you're an oncologist, would you care if someone thought poorly of you because you put poison into people to make them well? Chemotherapy. No. People are criticizing you because you're using poison. We said no, because it cures people. It heals people. The multitudes, we must remember, said Jesus had lost his mind, and was a possessed of the devil in Mark 3. Others said he had a demon and was insane in John 10. King Agrippa told Paul in Acts 26, Paul, when he heard about the resurrection of the dead, he said, Paul, you are out of your mind. Tim Keller says, when I forget the gospel, I become dependent on the smiles and evaluations of others. So here's what I'm going to do for you this morning. I'm going to help you with something that's been a great help to me. <clears throat> what helps me is that if I know, when I'm going to share Christ with someone, I, if I knew how they would respond, I'd be a lot more likely to share the gospel, wouldn't you? Okay, so I'm going to answer the question. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the answers before you take the test. Y'all love that. Don't have to take cheat sheets in. You cheat on this. I love this passage, Acts 17. Paul is in Athens, and he's telling them about the resurrected Christ. And there's three responses. And the three responses in Acts 17 are the same three responses that you will get wherever, whenever, whoever you share Christ with. Some mocked Paul. Some laughed at Paul. Some said, you're an idiot. You're nutty for God. 
Some, it said, said, I've never heard about men raising from the dead. This is a new thought. I'd like to hear more about this. I want to consider what you've said. And then some, it says, came to faith in Christ. When you and I share Christ, those are the three responses. Look, they can't be any others. Those are it. So motivating. And it rids me of what others think of me. Third motivation. The great love of Christ compels us. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. That word compel or control means to pressure, to constrain. A pressure applied to cause and action. It is motivational in nature. In the verb tense here of this word compel is in the present tense, which emphasizes this continuous nature of the pressure upon Paul. And the source of that pressure is this, the great love of Christ for him. Now, where does that pressure come from ultimately? It comes from the cross. Paul said it here, one has died for all. The cross is the pressure that compels the Christian to speak. The cross is where God crucified all of our reasons to distrust him. Right there. To doubt that he loves me, to doubt that he cares for me was on the cross. Paul said, that great love toward me motivates me to share that with others. So when we know that, and the deeper we know that, and the richer we know that, and the The clearer we know that, Paul says, here's what happens. We are drawn, we are pressed, wooed, nudged through shaky voice, through trembling hands to tell others about this great love for them. Number three, the great love of Christ. Number four, a Christ-centered life versus a self-centered life. Look at verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, on your tombstone, I can imagine, maybe you have a last will and testament, and maybe some of you have in that what you'd like put on your tombstone. I don't think anybody in here would like to have your tombstone say, feel selfish Herndon, Right? Now, it's true, right? But we don't want to put that forever on the tombstone, right? That's a joke. (laughs) Sort of, right? He's no more selfish than any of us. Here's the deal what Paul knows. The possibility that those of us who have trusted Christ might revert back to living for ourselves is an ever-present danger that every one of you and I have to bat on a daily basis. Can you just say amen to that? Yes. But again, the fact that God would send his son to die in our place pushes Paul, nudges Paul past self-protection, past self-serving, and past selfishness to a Christ-centered life. Now, Paul sums that up for us in this very familiar passage of Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. So we ask another question. If you found out that someone that you knew had the cure, the 100% cure for the terminal disease that you had in your body, and they did not tell you about it, and you've known them for years, and you've been slowly dying for years, and you found out that they had that cure, you would never look at that person and go, oh, I understand. I understand why you may not share that with me. You would go, what are you thinking? You knew the cure for this disease I've had and now it's killing me and you refuse to tell me? Why? Jesus doesn't rebuke us for having desires and longings and hopes and dreams. But what he wants to do in our growth is to reorient our desire so that we long for, we have ambition for, we have motivations for things that last. The souls of men and women last forever. The Christ-centered life. Motivation number five. No one is too sinful. I love this one. Are y'all hot this morning? Everybody's fanning. Can, we, can you help me out with the air, Dave? Coocher, somebody? Thank you. I can't preach to people passing out and sleeping, right? <laughs> so the devil's probably trying to, he's working the thermostat so y'all won't listen. Especially on this topic. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul's own conversion changed his whole outlook toward others. If he, Paul is saying, being the worst of sinners, could be saved by grace, anyone could. Matter of fact, Paul says in that verse that he at one time even looked at Christ from this human perspective, that he was just another man, that he didn't raise from the dead, that he was just a philosopher, that he was some leader who would fade out like other leaders. Paul said, I came to a wrong conclusion, though. So let me take us to Acts 7 here to press this point. Stephen, in Acts 7, the first Christian martyr, had shared the whole gospel story with the Jewish religious leaders, starting back in the Old Testament. And he talked about how the, God was working the gospel in that story and how they rejected that message and persecuted and, and killed the prophets who tried to tell them of that story. When they heard Stephen say that, it says, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. I think it means they were angry. They had been exposed publicly. And here's what they did. They cast Stephen out of the city and they stoned him to death. And the witnesses to Stephen's death laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Or we know him as Paul signifying that he was the one who ordered the brutal murder of Stephen, the first martyr. Paul says, if I was not too sinful for the kindness of God, no one is. No matter what they look like, no matter how they act, no matter what they're living in, 
They are not too sinful. Here's what I love about this. Paul, a couple chapters later in Acts 9, is converted. First six or seven, eight verses are his story of his conversion to Christ. And then by verse 20, just a few verses down, this is what it says he's doing. Proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, saying Jesus is the Son of God. That is as normal Christianity as there is. Now, that's not to shame you. It's just to show all of us we have been exposed to a Christianity that's not necessarily a biblical Christianity. And we must pull ourselves out of that by the grace of God. We must see people here through the lens of God. All people have the mark of the divine. We no longer look at people in terms of power and race and riches or any other human lens, but we look at them with two categories, believer and non-believer. That's the lens of God through a spiritual lens. I was thinking in my preparation how easy it would have been for Joe Schrader to view me and the other football players at East Carolina that he was sharing Christ with from a fleshly perspective. It's not worth my time to evangelize arrogant, self-absorbed football players. Or, you know, when I'm not an athlete, I can't relate to them. I'm glad he didn't. So who is it? Who is it that you think would never come to Christ? And maybe the follow-up answer is, go get them. Go get them. Motivation number six, to have a tangible effect on the world to come. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So we know when a person is in Christ, they, they are immediately placed in or being a part of a new creation, a new created world when Christ is to, re to return, a, a world to come in some ways. So everything we do here, Paul is saying, also matters there. The temptation for us is to think about how small our little lives are. But they're not. They're impactful. Every time someone comes to Christ, we are adding to that new kingdom. Yes, we arrive in eternity and Christ meets us. He says, well done, my good and faithful servants from the mouth of Christ himself. So great joy there. But when someone comes to Christ with us, we're adding to this new world. This past weekend, uh, our family got to go back to Clemson. And Clemson was where I worked for six years with athletes there. And here's, here's what was so great about it, is I got to hang with some athletes, wrestlers, swimmers, football players, that I led to Christ and discipled 30 plus years ago. One guy grabbed me face to face, tears in his eyes, and he said, listen, I got a wife been married 28 years, three daughters. My family's crazy. The only reason I'm walking with Christ today is your four years with me. 
Matter of fact, he reminded that his first date with his girl, because Jen and I set him up, was to hear Josh McDowell talk about sexual purity. <laughs> what a first date, right? <laughs> Look, I say that because I didn't have, honestly, I had very little to give them. I was young and dumb and immature and didn't even, wasn't even aware of issues. But the gospel, I gave them the gospel and I gave them myself, my home, my food, my life, my friendship. And here's the deal is this. I told him the reason I gave them that is because Joe Schrader had given me his. And before that, Earl Shute had given Joe Schrader. And before that, somebody had given Earl Shute. And it goes on and on and on and on. Like our life really matters. We add to this new created world would last for eternity when we share Christ with someone. That's a motivation. God's grace to us, verse 18a. Motivation number seven. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. All this is from God, through Christ, who reconciled us to himself. The word reconciled means we were once enemies, and now because of God's work through Christ, we are his friend. And any time in the New Testament, when we see this language of reconciliation, God is always the subject of the reconciling activity. It is God who initiates with lost sinners, not the other way around. Paul is saying here, it is God's amazing grace that removed the obstacle of sin through his son. If you are in Christ today, if you are a believer in day today, Paul is saying here, do not forget it is God who initiated with you through his grace. As I studied this week, I was just reading a lot of things and I listened to this sermon on the Gospel Coalition, this, this American who's a missionary in Iran, and he told this story of this young lady talking about God's initiation. Um, she was an Iranian, young 18, 19-year-old gal. She's in the shower, and she hears this voice, not audible, but the thought runs through her head, this, these words, I am going to wash away your sin. She went as a faithful Muslim to her imam who oversaw the mosque she was a part of weekly and said, I had this thought, I will wash away your sin. Who is that speaking to me? And the imam said to her, that is the prophet Jesus. He is the only one who speaks that way. Even non-Christian Muslims know that. A few weeks later, her sister was working in the Netherlands, was coming home. Unbeknownst to this gal who heard that voice, her sister had come across a few years before, but hadn't told anyone in the family in fear of persecution and had been growing in the Netherlands. And before they know it, they were sitting on the bed and one sister sharing the gospel with another one. And this young girl, who just a few weeks before, God had already told her and initiated, I will wash away your sin, comes to Christ. This lady and her husband are now in ministry in Iran and they have been persecuted jailed, but her husband said of her, she was so grave, 
she was so brave with the gospel under interrogation. So brave that one of her interrogators came to Christ. I was like, just kill me and bury me right there. God's grace has no barriers. No barriers. But men and women are his method. Motivation number eight. To fulfill faithfully the ministry God has given us or given you. Verse 18. B. And God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now here's something I've heard Christians say for 30 plus years. I'm just waiting for God to show me my ministry. I just want to find out where to serve in ministry for God and the gospel. And those are great desires and great wishes. But folks, (laughs) folks, you already have one. You have a ministry of reconciliation. It's been given to you at the point that you came to Christ, that God reconciles you to Christ, and then you are now a minister of reconciliation to others. So the search is over. I have solved 75% of your problems today with that one line. We experience reconciliation with God. We are immediately to be in the reconciling ministry business. Motivation number nine, to be a trustworthy courier of the gospel. Look at verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation or the gospel, trusting us the gospel. So we have a ministry of reconciliation, but that ministry we have also has a message And here's the great news. We don't create the message. We simply deliver the message as a good and faithful steward. Monty has mentioned this term. We are spiritual mailmen. We can't make people go to their mailbox and get their mail. We can't make people open their mail. We cannot make people read their mail. All you and I can do is deliver the mail. We can't make people come to faith in Christ. All we can do is share the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, leaving the results to God. Successful evangelism. There it is. I've actually had people say, I don't want to share my faith. And I understand this. I don't want to share my faith because I hate failing and I don't want to be a loser. And I, I want to be successful at the things I do. I'm like, boom, bow, yeah, I can help you. You know how you get, this is how you are a successful evangelist. You share the gospel. Their response has nothing to do. God can take that and begin to bring about on their lives what he brought about on Jonah's life. And I've seen him do it hundreds of times. And you know he's done it because he did it in you or a lot of you. Number 10, to accurately speak for our king in a foreign land, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So as Christ followers, we know that this world is not our home. Paul calls us ambassadors for a nation without borders. 
He calls us to be ambassadors for an invisible kingdom. You and I represent a king whose throne is in heaven, but he reigns spiritually through the hearts of us, his people. We represent the homeland and its message. As ambassadors of Christ, God makes his appeal through us, Paul says. He says, therefore, I plead and I beg for others to be reconciled to God. Now, you think about a U.S. ambassador. When he goes overseas to meet with a foreign king, he says nothing that the president hasn't given him the authority to say. He doesn't have any authority of his own. He simply has delegated authority. So when you and I sit down with someone to tell them about Christ, this is the picture we've got to get, that straight from the throne of God himself is a cable that comes down and goes through me to that person. I am simply taking his message to them. I and you get to be the literal mouthpiece of the living God. That is motivating. And we have a message. We don't have to go, oh, well, I don't know what to say. No, we have a message. And we're going to equip you in time to what that message is. And lastly, number 11. You know, I've never preached a sermon with 11 points, just so you know. <laughs> to have the great honor in proclaiming the most powerful, beautiful, and stunningly glorious 24 words in the history of the world. This verse in 21 is what those scholars were talking about when they talked about the importance of this passage. Let me read it for us. Verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This, folks, is the gospel in 24 words. This is a highly compressed statement of the gospel, but it is extremely profound. Think about the first part of it. For our sake, he made him Christ to be sin who knew no sin, saying that Christ was made to bear the consequences of our sins no wonder someone said that this had an incredible motivation on Paul to share the gospel. And the second part, so then in him we might become the righteous, righteousness of God. No wonder that was motivating for Paul to share the gospel. It was God who laid on his son Christ the sin of us all, and it was God who imputed or embed in us the very righteousness of Christ himself. One writer put it this way, Jesus, speaking of verse 21, Jesus became a cup of wrath, and then God clothed us in Christ's righteousness. Another writer put it this way, that God treated Christ as if he had committed all the sins of every believer who would ever believe, so he would treat every believer as if they had lived Christ's perfect life life. Luther spoke of verse 21 like this. Thou hast taken upon thyself what is mine and hast given to me what is thine. Thou hast taken upon thyself what thou wast not and hast given to me what I was not. Calvin again speaks it this way. Christ, that rich and pious husband, takes a wife, takes as a wife a needy and impious harlot redeeming her from all her evils and supplying her 
with all good things. And lastly, George Whitfield says, this is the wondrous exchange made by his boundless goodness. Having become with us the son of man, he has made us with himself sons of God. By his own descent to the earth, he has prepared our ascent to heaven. Having received our mortality, he has bestowed on us his immortality. Having undertaken our weakness, he has made us strong in strength. Having submitted to our poverty, he has transferred us to his riches. Having taken upon himself the burden of unrighteousness with which we were oppressed, he has clothed us with his own righteousness. Paul says that is the culmination of motivation, the greatest message ever to share that with others. So this morning, if you're not motivated, check your heart. I can set the fire, but I can't make it go inside, right? And that's okay. Here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to look at one of those 11 motivations, and I want you to circle one and say, that would motivate me if I kept it on the forefront of my mind and heart. And secondly, I want you to take a few minutes to write a name down and pray for that person. Lord, would you give me a chance to share the gospel with that person? Okay, two things.